Brady. Morning, everybody. Oh, yes, it really was an incredible party last night. Uh, you haven't had a chance to see Mike Pierpont back there, man. What do his magic? It was that was just. I mean, can we just? I just, man, I'm so thank you for, for, for doing that. It was so cool. But um, I want to talk about another holiday other than Christmas just for a moment. If I were to participate in the time-honored tradition uh, of Festivus, I would want to participate in the airing of the grievances. Uh, and I would have some things to say this year about how I have been especially grieved by the Christmas police. My apologies to any of you who proudly wear the badge of Christmas police. You are loved, you are welcomed here. However, I have some grievances. Don't get me wrong, I certainly appreciate and respect those who are prepared to die on the hill of a particular conviction, but let's be honest, sometimes we are uh, arguing just because we like to argue, and my Enneagram 9 self has very little tolerance for it. The Christmas police are those who make it their mission in life to make sure that no one is having any fun with ignorance. You see, this in the secular world, with folks arguing over whether Die Hard is a Christmas movie. You see the... the, the we see how the Christmas police are already, you know, they're out there among us. The, the thinking from the Christmas police that is, if Christmas isn't an immovable part of the plot, the movie can't be thought of as a Christmas movie. And since Die Hard could have taken place on the 4th of July, and it still would have been about terrorists taking over an office building, it is therefore not a Christmas movie. I even heard one Christmas police officer use this logic to argue that it's a wonderful life, a movie that ends with a man running down a snowy street yelling Merry Christmas is in fact not a Christmas movie. In reality, most of the movie has nothing to do with Christmas. I digress. But you also see it in the church, right? Again, don't get me wrong, I have a lot of respect for the um, precious tradition of Advent that the church has marked for centuries. But you know, when you hear folks get angry over the thought that we're singing Christmas carols in Advent, I confess to being a little grieved. So my word to the Christmas police this year would be, slow your roll and have some more eggnog. Being true to your convictions is one thing, but as the Apostle Paul said, let's not quarrel over opinions. Let everyone be convinced in his own mind whether Die Hard is a Christmas movie or not. It's right there in Scripture. So with this in mind, it may help us to arrive at a place that celebrates that God has created us all differently and that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. I would hope that this is a more mature version of the statement, whatever floats your boat or whatever makes you happy. Better put, I think it could be said, whatever brings you genuine joy or at least maybe points in that direction. Uh, this past Friday night, I had the opportunity to gather with a dozen other guys for our history club party. We drank and we ate and we talked about plans for the, the upcoming holidays. And driving home, I was just, I was just so overwhelmed and grateful for uh, what I experienced as a time of genuine joy. 
being with friends, these guys that I love, and, and sharing life together. And then last night, of course, we had our annual New Hope Christmas party. Mega thanks to Troy and Katie Graves, AB, for, for hosting, and we brought back the white elephant, uh, and Michael Pierpont mesmerized the crowd with this very impressive magic. See, these um, times with friends are, for me, things that point in the direction of genuine joy. They remind me that God desires that I seek His best for my life, not just the temporary pleasures that I use to define joy. So the question I have for us this season, or at least this week, as we consider the topic of joy is, well, what is genuine joy? And where does it come from? The dictionary defines joy as the emotion uh, evoked by well-being, success, or good fortune, um, or by the uh, prospect of possessing what one desires. The word that Paul uses to translate joy in his discussion of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians is the word kara, which could also be translated gladness or cheerfulness or calm delight. So evidently, according to Scripture... One of the marks of a spirit-filled existence is joy. In Philippians, Paul uses a different version of the word to say, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness, the word there, let your reasonableness, your your gentle spirit, your fair-mindedness, let that be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. What's Paul saying here? He's saying you you have much to be joyful over. I know it's a wicked world full of wicked things. But God has a plan for how we're all going to play a part in bettering it together. But never lose sight of the truth that in Christ, you have the freedom to embrace joy. Not a pie-in-the-sky, goofy kind of way, but rather with, with gentleness, with courage, with thanksgiving, and with peace. When you truly come to see the immeasurable riches and goodness of our God, You come to see the joy, it's not just a feeling, it's a way of life. And more importantly, it is your inheritance that has been robbed from you by sin and evil and death. The reason why joy is always such a key component to Advent and Christmas is that with the birth of Jesus, with this coming Emmanuel, God with us, we see our Creator begin the sacred promise of restoring that joy to his people. Still, embracing joy doesn't mean ignoring the world. In our day, some 15.7 million people are affected by depression, and over 40 million people are affected by anxiety. Millions are struggling each day with the harsh realities of life, and they are facing brokenness and fear and immobilization, mental paralysis and fear. I'd be lying if I didn't admit to being affected deeply by it myself. I'm grateful that I've, I've recently had the opportunity to sit with a counselor, a professional, somebody, someone I trust deeply and talk about the reality of how depression and anxiety have affected my own life and my own ministry. And so if you're here this morning, 
and you have your own struggles with depression or anxiety. I hope you don't hear us talking about joy in a way that seems exclusionary. It's my hope that we can be a community that doesn't run from those realities, doesn't ignore them, but it's my hope that our first goal would be to cultivate an atmosphere of acceptance. I believe that is the responsibility of the church, that that, that the responsibility of the church is to love others as they are and trust that with God on our side, he never intends to leave us as we are. So why we are called to walk, so while we are called to walk in the dark corners of the world, we trust that when we do that, we're bringing the one who is light along with us, so rejoice. Again, I say rejoice. I read an article the other day that reported that Disney has already made over $10 billion at the worldwide box office this year. That's just box office revenue. That's not counting the money made from their Disney Plus service and their theme parks and the fact that they own the Star Wars franchise, which has a whole new movie coming out next week um, that they're going to close out their year. But clearly, Disney is offering a product that the world is buying. I love Disney. I've really taken a lot of pleasure late these days in watching Winnie the Pooh with Henry in the morning. Um, Still, it makes me wonder. Uh, Listen to this, this rather long quote. I apologize for the length of it, but this quote from Eugene Peterson's book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. He says this. He says, Joy is not a requirement of Christian discipleship. It is a consequence. It is not what we have to acquire in order to experience life in Christ. It is what comes to us when we are walking in a way of faith and obedience. We come to God and to the revelation of God's ways because none of us have it within ourselves except momentarily to be joyous. Joy is a product of abundance. It is an overflow of vitality. It is life working together harmoniously. It is exuberance. Inadequate sinners as we are, none of us can manage that for very long. And we try to get it through entertainment, Peterson says. We pay someone to make jokes and tell stories and perform dramatic actions and sing songs. We buy the vitality of another's imagination to divert and enliven our own poor lives. To the enormous entertainment industry in America is a sign of the depletion of joy in our culture. That hit me when I read that. The enormous entertainment industry in America is a sign of the depletion of joy, genuine joy in our culture. Society is a bored, gluttonous king employing a court jester to divert it after an overindulgent meal. But that kind of joy never penetrates our lives. It never changes our basic constitution. The effects are extremely temporary. A few minutes, a few hours, a few days at most. When we run out of money, the joy trickles away. We cannot make ourselves joyful. Joy cannot be commanded, purchased, or arranged. Peterson, who taught here in Baltimore for a few years um, uh, before he died, he never had a problem saying what was on his mind. See, I, I love Disney and I love other movies and entertainment, but I think it does make me wonder what an, what an industry this large says about our culture. 
That's not necessarily a reason to avoid entertainment and take Disney Plus off your TVs. I think it's quite possible that some would simply remove themselves from the entertainment as much as possible and then still continue to struggle with the absence of genuine joy in their lives. No, the real question is, are we living with the the creator, with the author of joy at the center of our hearts? True Genuine joy between us and our Heavenly Father was a key part of what was lost by the entrance of sin into the grand cosmic narrative. The absence of genuine joy is a symptom of what makes this world as dark as it is. But now, but now in Christ, we are called to a different way. We're called to a better way. We're called to be a people so defined by our new life in Christ that we see entertainment for what it is, but look for true joy in the one that is putting the world back together in King Jesus. Our text this morning is Isaiah 35. If you have a a Bible, please turn with me there. Isaiah chapter 35 will actually be in the whole chapter. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like a crocus. I had to look up what a crocus was. I found a picture of it. It's on the front of your bulletin. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. They shall, uh, then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lay down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes, and a highway will be there. And it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not grow astray. Amen. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Here we see a picture of what it looks like for God to restore joy to his world. As we've seen over the past few weeks, Isaiah is a book that's filled with judgment, but it's also filled with hope. It it is a book that deals honestly and indeed prophetically with idolatry and with injustice, specifically as it related to Israel. You read these pages of white-hot prophecy that God has against Israel as well as other nations of the world, and then frequently, as we see in the passage for today, the um, the language of the book just turns to hope. Clearly, God is furious 
over the fact that many have turned away from him and chose instead the way of rebellion. But, but we also get these images of a time when God is going to put things back together again. There is an anticipation of what God will do to right the wrongs of the world that permeate the book of Isaiah, and that makes it a perfect book for us to look at during the Advent season. When we look at chapter 35 carefully, we can see that there's three themes that emerge from within it, Um, three themes that are important for us to consider as we seek to walk that path of holiness, that path of genuine joy. The first is a restoration of creation. That which is dry, wilderness, will turn to be glad. That which is desert will rejoice and blossom abundantly like a crocus with joy and singing. Note that three times there, just in the first verse and a half, the author has used natural language and personified it with giving the anticipatory motion of joy. These desert lands, they're going to be turned into rich, fertile lands. Lands given to the glory of Lebanon, Carmel, and Sharon, all areas of tremendous natural beauty at the time. The areas of the desert wilderness will one day see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. And later in the chapter, in the middle of verse 6, we see waters breaking forth in the wilderness, streams in the desert, burning sands becoming pools and springs of water, and the life of the animal world will thrive and see restoration. Clearly, there is at least an emotional connection here to environmental restoration and the joy humanity experiences as a result of it. But let's not move too quickly into making this all about us. God, you see, is in the business of restoring this world, what we've referred to in the prayers uh, prayers of the people as a cosmic reconciliation. Paul talks about this in his book of Romans when he says that for the creation wakes, waits with lo- uh, eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was sub- subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. There's no doubt that so many find true, genuine joy by experiencing, cultivating, and caring for the environment. But the image here and in uh, in Isaiah is one that sees God poised to free all of life from the bondage of corruption and reconcile the whole world, including the natural world, back to himself. So a word for us today as we consider walking the road of true, genuine joy is that perhaps one of the best things that we can do to anticipate the work that God is going to do in the natural world is to do as little harm to it as possible. It would seem to me that Christians should be on the front lines of the environmental care movement, knowing that this world is our home, and that one day King Jesus is going to return and set up his rule and reign on earth as it is in heaven. We've been called to follow Jesus' resurrection lead, and maybe that means that how we treat this earth has a direct impact on how we treat each other and how we treat God.
Here in Isaiah, we see language of the natural world being renewed back to God. And I I think we have to ask, are we getting in the way of that? Have you ever thought about the idea that as we've destroyed the environment, that we have haphazardly taken part in the destruction of our own joy? The next thing we see in Isaiah 35 is that of renewed humanity. We see by God's power, weak hands becoming strong, feeble knees becoming firm, the anxious losing their fear. The blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk, the silent speak. If you've been immobilized by despair, God has good news for you. If you felt like no one sees you, God sees you. If you feel like you don't have a voice, God is about to give you a voice. If you feel like you're crippled with fear, God is going to give you his strength, and he's going to do it through Jesus. There's a moment in the Gospels, both both Matthew and Luke record it, where word gets out to John the Baptist about some of the things that Jesus has been doing in his ministry. The thing is, maybe these things didn't look exactly like the kind of thing that John had expected Jesus to be doing. After all, John the Baptist had been put in prison for questioning authority, but then he just heard a rumor that Jesus had actually gone out of his way to heal a centurion's servant. Some even talked about how Jesus had celebrated the centurion's faith and commented how the centurion's faith was greater than what he found in Israel. That's not what we had in mind, John the Baptist thought, when we prepared the way for the revolution, Jesus. So John sends these messengers, and they ask Jesus, uh, hey, Jesus, are you the one that uh, was to come, or, or, or should we look for somebody else? And Jesus looks at the messengers, and he says, you go tell John what you see and hear. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And I'll tell you what, blessed uh, is the one who is not offended by me. What's Jesus doing there? He's quoting Isaiah 35. He's making reference to the promise of God that all of creation will be restored and humanity along with it. Paul actually continues this parallel theme right in the next verses of Romans 8, right after his discussion of the creation renewal, he says, and not only the creation, you see, but we ourselves, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as we ought. But this is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. We do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit, the Holy Spirit himself, intercedes with us for groanings too deep for words. Do you feel a lack of joy today? Do you feel a lack of happiness? Do you feel a lack of of true, genuine joy? Think about how God's word to you today might be that the Holy Spirit himself is interceding for you with groanings too too deep for words. 
We see here that the desire of God is to restore humanity physically. As God intends to restore creation that includes, as Paul says, the redemption of our bodies. We don't have time to go there right now, but, but later on in your, in your quiet time this week, I, I encourage you to read through Luke 24 and see a glimpse of what the resurrection of the flesh looks like and how it gives us hope. But Jesus, he was telling John the Baptist that the things Isaiah was prophesying about were things being fulfilled in his ministry. But before physical renewal could take place, something far deeper needed to be taken care of. It's interesting that in the midst of these verses about healing of humanity, Isaiah 35.4 says, Behold, your God will come with a vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come to save you. Save you from what? Save you for what? We often like to think of God and his love playing out for us in the person of Jesus. But it is just as important for us to think about God's vengeance at work as well. Think about what was lost and what God intends to restore. What was lost was the perfect union with him. Perfect union between creation and the humanity that lived in the midst of it and the God who was sovereign over it all. When we choose rebellion over love, it didn't just make God angry at us. It made God angry for us. Sin isn't just about breaking the rules. It is about the separation of us from union with God. Sin isn't just about being naughty. Sin hurts us. Sin hurts the men and women that God has created and the people that God loves. Of course, sin is going to make God furious because it's hurting the people that he loves. If, if, if someone was hurting my sons, James and Henry, I, it, it would make me a bad father if I wasn't furious at that and tried to do whatever I could to get them to stop. God did the same thing for us. When he saw sin hurting us, he stepped in and he offers us this third image that we see in the book of Isaiah. And that's this way of holiness. Four marks of the road. Four marks of those who are on the road that Isaiah points out. Point number one, that those who walk on the road are clean The road is for clean people, people who are washed of their sins, people who have gone before God, confessed their sinfulness, confessed that um, they have been robbed of their joy by their own making and looked to God to make them clean, looked for God to define what it is to be clean and looked to him to define it. So cleanliness, and there's also wisdom And the wisdom that God would say, I loved in the passage how it talked about how uh, even the fools wouldn't go astray. Like, it implied that fools would still be on the road. And that gave me a lot of joy because, you know, I'm a fool. But this wisdom idea that that it would be uh, something wise people would be on the road, it would be a mark of somebody that was on the road to be wise. Uh, Wisdom here, it's an upside-down wisdom at times, right, to be sure. But the more we walk in God's wisdom 
the more we realize that it was actually us that was upside down the whole time. Another mark of the road is the redeemed. We think of the redemption as being a, 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 as God redeeming our actions, God redeeming our lives. But, but maybe the language there, the language that, that's implied there in the verse is actually being brought back into the family of God. If you ever felt, especially in this time of year when we were, we're thinking about um, whether or not to invite that person uh, to, to, to uh, Christmas dinner or something like that, or I'm going to see them. Like, what does it look like for a family to come back together again? What does it look like for a, for a son who's been uh, far off or a daughter who's been far off for a while to actually be invited back into the family, to be redeemed, and now this family comes back together again? In Jesus, that is what God is doing, and there's joy of the product. And finally, it's, it's the ransomed. It's the idea that the price has been paid, and the result is joy. That in Jesus, the price for the sin, the, 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 the disconnect between our reality and God's holiness, that, that division, that uh, gap has been healed in Jesus, and the result is joy. I came across a, um, a great quote this week by Frederick Beekner. If you haven't read anything from him, I strongly recommend it in your devotional time. And he says this, he says, joy is home. God created us in joy and created us for joy. And in the long run, not all the darkness there is in the world and in ourselves can separate us finally from that joy. Because whatever else it means to say that God created us in his image, I think it means that even when we cannot believe in him, even when we feel most spiritually bankrupt and deserted by him, his mark is deep within us. We have God's joy in our blood. I love the idea that joy is your inheritance. Joy was the thing that God created you to have, and that joy flowed directly out of his relationship with you. You are to find that true, genuine joy in your holy relationship with God. And the idea that you, that joy has been robbed from you, the idea that that, that that joy has been stolen from you, in part by your own sin, in part by other things, by sin, death, and evil. The idea that your sin, your joy has been robbed for you makes God furious because he, because he so desires joy for you. And he will do anything, including putting on flesh and living a sinless life and dying a sinner's death on the cross and defeating death itself in the resurrection in order to give you back your inheritance of joy. It's an incredible picture of love. And even in the midst of lamenting the truth and the realities of this world, that depression and anxieties are still reality, it gives me so much peace and love to know that that is how much God loved me. It makes me want to declare that. It makes me want to sing. It makes me want to worship because he is the one who is defining and restoring joy for us all. Let me pray for us. Father, this joy concept is a slippery one. Sometimes we get caught up in what we think is joy, and we find out later on that, oh, no, that was just my own temporary pleasure. 
Help us to look to you for that definition. Help us to look for you for that cleansing spirit, that refiner's fire, that wisdom, that redemption. Help us to praise you for the ransom that you've paid, that the penalty that you've paid for our sins in order to defeat the sin and death and destruction and the evil of this world in order to restore that love, to restore that union with us, the thing that is actually going to give us true and genuine joy. I pray for my friends here today, especially anyone here who is struggling with this, who is, who is um, unsettled this Christmas season, who's thinking, I, I don't know if, if joy seems so far from the reality of my life, I don't know if I could ever actually experience it again. Father, I just pray that you would lay your hand on them right now, right now in this moment, and whisper in their ear, I love you. You're on the right path. Keep following me and we'll get there together. I ask all of this in the most holy name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior.